welcome in to another episode of Hatter Chatter, the podcast presented by Insight Credit Union. I'm happy to be joined today by Stetson University men's golf coach, Larry Watson. How are you doing today, Larry? I'm doing great, Ricky. How are you? I'm doing awesome. So your time at Stetson, you've been at Stetson now for what, seven years? Yeah, starting my eighth year. Starting, yeah. your, starting your eighth year. But yeah. that's just kind of the icing on the cake of your career. You have been all over the place, done lots of things. Your career has been, uh, it's a remarkable tale to tell. So let's start off. You grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, You know, only child, uh, two great parents, two uh, what I'd call maybe lower middle class income family. My dad was a routeman with Pepsi-Cola and my mom worked for a a dentist. And at one time she worked at St. Jude's. Uh, medical center when it first opened in Memphis as a uh, administrative assistant, but it was two hardworking people that uh, learned how to negotiate life, never getting out of the eighth grade. So, as you grow up in that that uh, family, what are what are your goals as you get toward the end of high school? What do you, I mean in high school? I know you played baseball. Did you play golf in high school? Did you even have a high school golf team? No, didn't. didn't I didn't. Uh, I didn't even fathom playing golf in that situation you know the the very fortunate thing for me is uh, you know i i grew up i was going to uh public school and uh didn't live in the best part of of memphis uh lived in fraser and was going along and all of a sudden out of nowhere uh columbia military academy a coach from columbia came and saw me play a, a baseball game when he was there actually looking at another player on another team and he saw me play and the next thing you know uh I was getting ready to, uh, my parents had put together enough money to send me to Christian Brothers High School uh, so I didn't have to be in the public school system, and I was going to be starting at uh, Christian Brothers, and then the next thing you know, I I get an opportunity to go to Columbia Military Academy, and that um, probably was the changing point of my life and something that I really liked because at that time um, on television, there was a series on TV about West Point. My dad had been in the Navy and my uncle Thomas was in the Navy. And I liked the military aspect of the world and and being able to do that. So I had always wanted to go to West Point or Annapolis and the opportunity to go to Columbia. And for my parents to go on a full scholarship where it didn't cost them anything, but, you know, my allowance every week, um, that was an opportunity of a lifetime for me. And it was really good for me being an only child. I had a lot of friends. Most of them were make-believe friends, but I had a lot of great friends in the neighborhood that in those days, uh, you know, we could play together, go anywhere we want. We could ride our bikes 20 miles and nobody worried about it. And uh, I was a latchkey kid. I mean, my parents would have been put in jail today for the way I was raised because they left at seven o'clock in the morning, did come home at seven o'clock at night. And I was by myself all day. So, uh, I watched a lot of television, played a lot of sports in my backyard. My dad built a, a baseball field in the backyard for his team. And uh, so I was just constantly trying to amuse myself or keep myself busy. But I was I was my own boss from when they left until they got home. And uh, it, it didn't hurt me any. I thought it was pretty good. But Columbia offered a, a great opportunity for me to go to a great school uh, in the in the city school system, I wasn't a very good student at all. I, I didn't even know I needed to wear glasses till I was in about the ninth grade in high school, and I realized I couldn't see. I didn't think anybody could see, so I thought everybody saw the same thing I did, and 
so I couldn't see the blackboard and I had a little ADD. I, I couldn't sit still longer than 10 minutes. I was ready to go, you know, so uh, going to military school was really good for me from a lot of different areas, but most of it was from uh, academic side. I became a pretty good student uh, and I liked I liked Columbia because we went to school at 830 and we got out at noon. And I always seemed to suffer from after lunch to three o'clock was really tough for me in the public school system. I'd, I'd had enough at that point. And at Columbia, we were out of school at noon, had lunch, then we did our military training, and then we ride into sports. So that was right up my alley. So when you talk about uh, Columbia and talk about the time frame here, this is after this is late fifties, early sixties. This is after after Korea, but before Vietnam really starts up. So it's not really a war footing. Yeah, I started uh, I started Columbia in 1959, and uh, it was after Korea, but uh, it was a fully-fledged military school, so it had the, the backing of the government. So we were basically an ROTC program of upper echelon ranking, and a lot of people don't know that. At that point in time, when the government was giving military schools uh, monetary support, they were basically the last line of defense at home should something happen. So, yeah, we were pretty highly trained in military skills for kids. But uh, if you look at it five years down the road, those same kids were in Vietnam fighting and those bullets were real and everything was real. So it was a it was a whole different time. So class in the morning, military training after that and then sports starts. What sports did you play? Well, it, that's kind of funny. They, uh, the coach that recruited me came to our house and he talked about me playing baseball and I, I was going to go, go to um, Columbia as a pitcher. And uh, after I, I got to Columbia, I found out if you were on a full scholarship that you, you had to play a sport in every season. So uh, baseball, we would start training for baseball in late November indoors and then we'd move outdoors in Columbia, Tennessee when the weather would permit. But we started baseball training in November. And uh, so I had to choose my freshman year. I had to choose between uh, football, what they call junior varsity football or some sport, boxing, wrestling, cross country. And I thought, how hard can cross country be? So I said, well, that sounds like a good deal. You get to run all through town. And uh, I have a great respect for coach Harmon and all of his cross country runners, because it didn't take me but one day to realize that cross country was a lot like work. <laughs> and uh, I did <laughs> and cross country and I did not get along when you're only, when you're only about five, seven, your steps don't make up for all those big, long, lanky kids that could run fast. So it was, uh, I didn't do cross country, but one, one semester I did cross country. <laughs> so what'd you move into after that? Well, like an idiot, I moved to, uh, I, I played football after that and basketball. And uh, uh, football was my number one love. I, I loved football more than I did uh, baseball, believe it or not. And basketball, I'd always enjoy uh, watching basketball and playing basketball. And so the opportunity to play uh, basketball at Columbia was a lot of fun, too. So, so what kind of football player were you? Uh, well, uh, as it turns out, I was supposed to be a token football player because they were trying to protect me. The assistant football coach was the head baseball coach. So I was really there as a, uh, an observer. And the next thing you know, people started getting hurt and uh, I ended up playing. I ended up uh, ended up uh, at first I was a get back. Have you ever known one of those kids? I know what the get, get back, back coach is. Get back over there and get out of the way. And then I turned into a halfback. And then the next thing you know, I was playing quarterback, and before long, because everybody had been hurt, I was the starting quarterback, and I kept um, 
I kept trying to figure out how did I get in this? I came here to play baseball and watch football. And now I'm out here playing football. And uh, it was, uh, I won't say it was a comedy of errors because it turned out to be that I, I was a pretty good football player. I just wasn't big enough. I, I didn't realize I wasn't 6'2". I, I kept thinking I was 6'2", and I wasn't. So I assume back in those days you were probably running a veer or some version of the option. Yeah, we we yeah we run an option, you know, wing T option stuff like that, and uh, we ran a lot of pass plays because I could actually throw the ball, but it was very difficult to run pass plays for us because if the lineman stood up, I hit him in the back of the head, so they had to play from a crouch before that was ever really the end way of blocking. So it was one of those I either had to roll out and pass, or everybody had to stay in a crouch, or they got hit in the back of the head. <laughs> That's Doug Flutie's problem. He had to find the hole between the linemen <laughs> well, and throw it down. Yeah. <laughs> Flutie and I had a lot of things in common. Talent wasn't one of them. He had a lot of talent, and I didn't. So, When baseball season comes along, that's obviously your passion. And talk a little bit about uh, your life in baseball there at Columbia. Well, base- baseball was my passion. My dad uh, uh, was a great baseball player, was going to play for the Cardinals, and then he ended up going into World War II. And, and when he came out of World War II, I had been born, and he just – he had to get a job. He couldn't go back and try to go through the minor league system, but uh, was a great pitcher. And uh, most of the time that my dad and I spent together was on the weekends because he worked, you know, long hours as a routeman. So those, those weekend hours, he was coaching his own uh, little league baseball team, but he would never allow me to play on his team. I had to play on a different team. And, uh, so I would always go to his practice in our backyard with his team and all my, all my buddies played for my dad and I played for another team across town. So my mother would have to drive me to practice uh, at a different time and different location. And the only time I'd ever play against my dad would usually be in an all-star game or, or, uh, you know, a city championship. And that was never a lot of fun because I always had to play against my friends. And, uh, but my dad was a huge influence on me athletically uh, he taught me so much about baseball. He was a brilliant. He, he really had a, a baseball mind. And talent-wise, he was one of the best pitchers I'd ever seen. And it, it was one of those things where he, he knew right away that he might have had a kid that, if he was a little bit bigger, could have played. But he spent hour after hour after hour helping me understand the game, teaching me how to throw, teaching me how to hit. And, and we would watch ball games together, and he would point out, things to me on the television that I didn't see. I didn't, I didn't understand the nuance of the game, but he would show it to me. And uh, it was great quality time for a father and a son. So it was great. So what you what positions did you play? Well, as it, as it started, I was a catcher and a pitcher, believe it or not. And uh, uh, pitching, I would pitch a game in little league and then I'd catch the rest of the games. And then when I went to high school, I went as a pitcher and uh, uh, ironically the coaches, uh, weren't the people that signed me. Uh, so the coach that saw me play and signed me told the uh, baseball coaches about me as a pitcher. And so I get to the school and I, I'm pitching and here I am, I'm about five, seven, weighed about 125 pounds. And the first game I ever pitched in military school, we, we played other military schools or freshman college teams at the time. So the first game I ever pitched, was against the Vanderbilt freshman. And you talk about a kid, I, don't, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I'd never seen guys with beards playing baseball. And these kids, you know, those freshmen in college looked like they were about 35 years old. And the coach gave me the ball. He said, just go out there and throw to the mitt. Just go throw to the mitt. So 
I was scared to death. That's what I did. And it was uh, a lot of fun. And then we went on a road game and uh, I, I just wasn't very smart when I was young like that. We were sitting in the dugout and I'd pitched the afternoon before in a game in relief. And uh, coach looked down the dugout and he said, who can catch batting practice? And I said, I can. And he goes, Larry, just get out of the way. And, and he says, no, who can catch batting practice? And I said, coach, I can catch, I can catch. And he goes, okay, smarty, just put the stuff on and I'll let you catch batting practice. So I went up in the cage and I'm catching batting practice and I look up and about five batters into batting practice, both of the coaches are standing next to the cage and they're watching me catch. And when I got through with batting practice, you know, they call me in a dugout and he says, why did you tell us you could catch? And I said, well, you didn't ask. I, you know, I don't say anything unless somebody asked me in military school, that was the best way to get along. You don't say anything unless somebody asks a question. So next thing you know, the second game of a doubleheader that day, I caught and I caught a, I caught every game thereafter until my senior year. And then we had a kid that was a really good hitter, but he was so slow he couldn't play in the outfield. And the next thing you know, he could catch. So we made him a catcher and I ended up playing shortstop and second base. So I, I ended up being a util, utility player is what I ended up being. So what kind of hitter I didn't pitch anymore. Didn't, didn't pitch what kind of hitter was there? Yeah, what kind of hitter were you? Uh, you know, I was a, a really good hitter, to be quite honest with you. And, and it, simply because of all the things that my father had taught me, I, I understand, I really understood how to recognize pitches. And at the time, I was one of the few young kids that was a switch hitter. And that came about because I, I, when I first started playing, I was right-handed. I was so scared of the curveball. My dad says, well, if you can't, if you can't stay in the box, hit a curveball, maybe we need to turn you over to the other side. And I got over to the left side and found out I was probably a better hitter, left-handed hitter than I was a right-handed hitter. So I started switch hitting uh, right away. And that was an, another thing that the coaches at Columbia found out you know, as an accident because the first game I ever played, the kid from Vanderbilt that was pitching was left-handed. When I went to bat, I bat right-handed. Nobody thought anything about it. Then the next, you know, the next game I play, this kid's throwing right hand. I walked up to the plate to hit, and I got on the opposite side of the plate. And the, my coach called timeout like I was lost or something. He called me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting ready to hit. And I, I didn't take a lot of batting practice as a pitcher, you know. So he said, what do you mean you're getting ready to hit? I said, it, the guy's right-handed. I'm going to bat left-handed, and I'm going to hit. And he goes, you're a switch hitter? I go, yep, I am. So I go up, and the guy about – third pitch in he threw me some little soft floater and I lucked out and closed my eyes and hit it into the gap into left field and made a triple out of it and I never had any more questions after that about being a switch hitter so that was just luck of the draw you know too stupid to get out of the way so so you finish up at Columbia and uh what are your options for college you know it was really funny I I had played really uh fortunate for me we had a really good team our our team we had really good teams where at that time we had so many postgraduates coming in. We'd get a lot of really good, talented players coming in that were trying to get an extra year before they went to play freshman year in college. And so we had a great baseball team. And then my senior year, we went undefeated. Uh, the year before that, we had a really good team and only lost two games. So I got a lot of, a lot of schools were coming to look at players. And fortunately for me, I got, I was kind of a tag along look at and, Ole Miss had looked at me and had kind of talked to me about coming to, to play at Ole Miss because being from Memphis, I wasn't 60 miles away from Ole Miss. That kind of sparked my interest. But as it turns out, 
my senior year playing football at Columbia as a token and having to play, I ended up breaking my back. Mm. So I broke my back playing football, spent a long time in the hospital and looked like I wasn't going to get to play baseball again. And so all those interests kind of went away because nobody really figured I'd be able to play. So after graduation, I, I, my back healed. I got well. I had a good senior year and I ended up uh, walking on at Memphis State because that was really my only option. I could have gone to maybe Carson Newman and be quite honest with you, it's too bad I didn't know about Stetson at the time because it would have been a perfect, perfect school to me to come, a small school after going to a, a small military school. Stetson would have been a great place instead of Memphis State where you had 40,000 students. I was lost from the very beginning, uh, kind of like a duck out of water after having a, a graduating class of 90 people. It was just nuts, you know, going to to, to Memphis, but I ended up walking on at Memphis State. We played fall ball and and, uh, you know, that proved to be pretty good there because when I walked on the field at, at Memphis, I, I realized right away that this is this is the next step, which it's my boys. And it was, you know, I'd played in a great program that had a, a lot of really good coaches and I, I knew the game. But, you know, you walk around and you look at all these kids that were all Americans and they were six, three, six, two and all these people could do everything. And they'd been recruited. And, you know, the coach would say to me, you Larry, go play short. Then the next inning, he let me play second base. Then the next inning, I played third. Then he made me catch. I even played first base, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, I just – I kind of got the reputation of being able to play as an as a infielder, uh, as a utility guy. So that carried me through, and uh, that's where I settled. I just played wherever we needed because I, I wasn't this highly recruited, sought-after superstar. Now, who was your coach at Memphis back in those days? Uh, you know, Alan, uh, Alan, not Allie Prescott. I can't even remember the coach's name then. But uh, we had a couple of coaches turnovers. And then I, I left school after my second year because Vietnam was getting so bad that uh, I, I ended up playing in the Marine Corps for six weeks before I, they figured out I couldn't pass my physical. So I played at Quantico, came back from there, and uh, – went back to Memphis state and I, I realized then that I didn't, I'd gotten married. I did not need to spend time on the baseball field. I really needed to spend time on trying to figure out what it was I was going to do. And uh, I wanted to be a sportscaster or something, journalist major. Uh, I want to be a sports writer or something to be honest with you. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to be in the service. <laughs> I didn't want to be in the army. I didn't want to be doing that. And it was a, you know, that was a sad time. I, I, I lost 11 Fraternity brothers are, are good friends in the Vietnam War. My best childhood friend was killed in the Army, and uh, I, I, did not, um, I did not see myself in that arena at all. And at one time, I thought, you know, armed services would be a great place for me for a career. My uncle was a career Navy officer, and I thought that was great. But at that point, I just – I'd been to too many military funerals, and I couldn't go to another one, and I didn't uh, – I just couldn't do it. You get disqualified from from uh, military because of your back injury. Yeah, when the when they when they saw the yeah when they saw the X rays of my back, they go, "How did you even get here?" And I go, well, "I just you know I I filled out the paperwork, I enlisted, I got here, and I was immediately played baseball." And so when they got ready to do my physical for basic training, that was it. I was out. So I don't know how they it pulled so many strings to get me to play, but I got through that part of it, which was. Uh, blessing. But uh, after that, I, I was home and I was right back in school. And then I, 
I, that's when I found golf. I, I ended up playing uh, golf one afternoon with one of my friends that was a pitcher for the, for Memphis state and ended up signing with the Cardinals and we got rained out of a double header and they said they were going to go play golf. And I, we can't play golf. We just got rained out of a double header. They said, yeah, but golf courses aren't like that. They'll be dry in no time. So we're going to go play golf. And I went to play golf with them. And right then it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Cause I was like a, a, a bass getting hooked. I couldn't get away from it. I was hooked. I'd never played anything that, I thought was as much fun and challenging and, and I, I was done. That was it. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. Were you a natural or did you have to grow into it? Well, I think uh, hitting the ball, I think all the baseball and all the things I played, I, I was a bit of a natural there. I just didn't have any idea what I was doing. I didn't, you know, I'd never played golf as a kid. I'd never been a driving range. I mean, my dad didn't have the time to play golf. I think he played a little, but he never offered to take me to play golf. We didn't have the money to go play golf and uh, he didn't play a lot of golf, but uh, I just, I just wanted to, uh, I just loved hitting hitting the ball. So I just would do whatever it took to go somewhere and hit balls and play. And a couple of my college friends liked to play. So we would go, you know, buy 25 cent golf balls out of a jar and play a public golf course and walk and carry our clubs. And I think it probably cost us $2 to play golf. So, I mean, that was the cheapest form of entertainment that I could find at that time. And I played, I played a, from sun up to sundown, many days it was crazy how much I played. Obviously, your dad had a big influence on you growing up, but who else were some of your role models that you had back as you were growing up in Memphis? Uh, you know, probably uh, as I got into golf, uh, the first uh, job I had, I, I became an assistant pro after I started playing golf. I, I turned pro within uh, about eight months because I knew I didn't want to play amateur golf. There was no money in it, and I was working at Shell Oil Company. I'd gone to work for Shell Oil Company right out of college. And one of the engineers at Shell was a big time golfer, amateur golfer. So he, he was a big influence and uh, he, he helped me a lot learn the game. And he took me to the country club where he was a member. I'd never been in a country club in my life. And he took me there and, and we played and I saw what real golf courses look like and had fun doing that. But Art was a, a great guy and helped me so much. And, uh, my real role models was the first first boss I had in the golf business. I worked at a brand new country club as an assistant. He helped me a lot learning golf. And then one of my biggest role models at the time was the golf coach at, at the University of you know at Memphis State. And Bill Brogdon was the coach at Memphis State at the time. And he later ended up being a coach at LSU and then went on to to coach out at Tulsa and uh you know, Bill was a real influence. He played a lot of golf with me because uh, my deal was I, I'd make six birdies, but I'd make a 10 and an eight. And it, you know, I didn't have a clue how to get around a golf course. So Bill taught me that. And then uh, we had professional tournaments uh, on Mondays. Every Monday, all the courses were closed. We'd have professional tournaments. And the old pros in town would kind of take me under their wing and show me some things. So I, I got to meet Hillman Robbins uh, Jr., who was one of the best 
players in the country at the time. And uh, he helped me. And then the next thing you know, one thing led to another. I, I met Dr. Middlecoff and he taught me. And then from there, it just, it was all luck, right place at the right time. But I worked for, a, I worked my second job in the golf business. I worked for a young man named Jerry Hinton, who was one of the best players in the city of Memphis. And he told me if I would come to work for him and, and help him run Chickasaw Country Club, he said, I'll help you get on tour because he knew I wanted to play tour golf. He said, I'll help you get on tour. And uh, Jerry was a huge mentor to me. He was my idol. He could do everything. And true to his word, he helped me get on tour because he introduced me to my first sponsor. And from there, it just one thing kind of, it was like building a brick, brick wall. It just one brick stacked on the next and it just kept parlaying into the next thing. So how much golf were you playing as you were finishing college and starting in the professional world? I mean, you playing every day or? Well, you know, uh, most people know if you're an assistant golf pro, you, you get into the golf business because you want to play. And the first thing you find out is you don't get to play unless you're off because you're working. And so, yeah, I played as much golf as I could. And, uh, you know, I would play on my days off. I'd play every Monday. And then when I went to work for Jerry at Chickasaw, he said, I'm going to make sure you play golf every day. And we had caddies at, at that club. And, you know, I didn't play 18 holes, but I might play five holes. I might play nine holes. But every opportunity he had to get me on the golf course, he'd go, go play, go get a card or go get a caddy, go play five holes and be back by three and I'm going to leave. Or, But I played golf every day that wasn't storming. I, I mean, I would play in the rain, but it had to be storming for me not. I played every day. It's kind of interesting to – that you start off a career in the, as a golf pro and had never really played golf before that until, no, you, until uh, you started playing. That's, I mean, obviously t- today's world, that never happened. No, these kids, the, the kids today that you see on tour, they started playing when they were six or seven. Their dads probably might've been professionals or, or taught them the game. And, and, you know, they, they join, they're at a country club or a nice uh, public facility and they take, lessons. I, I never had a golf lesson until I was 23 years old. I mean, I was a professional before I ever had a lesson. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, but it was a different time then. It was, it was much different than today. Today, the, the kids that, that play sports today, no matter what sport, they, they're very individualized. I mean, they're, they're sports specific, which personally, I think that's a detriment to a, a lot of sports. I, I think it's great when kids grow up and they, the kids that, play basketball and baseball and golf. They, they hear a perspective of, of how to play sports. They, they hear from three different coaches. They learn how to navigate the communication system with three different kinds of coaches. And they, they learn the ins and they learn the in and out of, of taking instruction and trying to see what they can do with it. So it is a different day today. I mean, all the boys on my team, they all have a swing instructor at home. They have, they have a mental coach. They have a nutritionalist. So uh, they're, they're very isolated in how they get their, you know, how, how they get their instruction is, is very regimented. So how long was it after you started as an assistant golf pro that you decided this is what I want to do for my career and, and, and made the jump to, to playing full time? Uh, I was playing in Europe in three years. So I played over in Europe and then I came back after playing in Europe and I played on the I joined the PGA Tour in, in 76, and I played from 
you know, 76 through about 81. And, you know, people ask me, you know, Roger Hughes, our football coach, he, the first thing I think he ever asked me is how long did you play the tour? And I tell him, I said, Roger, I played just long enough to go broke. That's how long I played the tour. So, you know, the, the tour when I played was, you know, my boys ask me that all the time on the team. And the tour back when I played was, it was a, a total different animal than it is today. It wasn't an all exempt tour. So you had, Monday qualifiers, then you had 60 players on the tour that were exempt. I was never exempt. I was always a Monday qualifier. So it was a vagabond way of life. And, you know, I, I probably, I probably missed more qualifiers by one shot than anybody in the history of the PGA tour. It was crazy. I, I, I would always make some mistake or something, but you know, it was a, it was a vagabond life back then. We traveled in cars. We flew very little. I flew probably more than most people, but we travel across the country in cars and we play one day tournaments. As you travel across the country, you'd get to the next event. They'd have a Sunday tournament. You'd play in that. You you play in anything you could try to make a living. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you got to realize that if you look at golf today and you know, everybody that plays on the PGA just about that's exempt made a million dollars. The leading money winner the first year I was on the tour in 1976 won $100,000 for the year. I think I made $47 of official money that year. And I'm, you know, as I said, I, I just played just long enough to go broke and I was too stupid to quit. But it was one of those things where uh, there were a lot of us in that boat, Monday qualifiers, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't have the depth at professional golf then that you do today. Today, anybody that has got a tour card can win. It's just, you know, any person can win. And that's why you see so many first time winners, kids right out of college win their first tournament because they've had the exposure, the training, they, they're not, they don't need that seasoning. You know, um, when I was playing, there were probably 40 guys on the PGA tour that could win. And then the rest of us were all filling in the spots to make it a tournament. And then you could get hot for a week and make a good check. But, you know, very few people came from the unknown area and, and, one, you know, when I was playing. So for a kid from Memphis who's been living in Memphis your whole life, what was it like going to Europe for a while and playing? Very eye-opening, very eye-opening. I mean, I didn't, uh, when I went over, the first time I went over, I went over with my sponsor and I, I didn't even understand the kind of grass we were playing on. Uh, I was totally lost and I was excited and it took me, uh, it took me a long time to understand what I had to do, uh, to play over there. And I, right off the bat as a golfer, I was very high ball hitter, which was, that's not what you wanted in Europe. So I had to learn how to hit the ball low. And, uh, I learned very quickly from some of the European caddies that listen, it doesn't have to be pretty. You just want to get it in the hole. So I adopted that fallacy about this whole thing very quick. I didn't care about how pretty it was. It was what I shot that made the difference. You know, that's, that's what cash to check. So that's what I did. So what were some of your favorite places to go while you were playing in Europe? I loved everything about Europe. I loved every country, every city. I loved the culture. And you can imagine with this Southern accent, being in Europe in the 70s, the way the BBC was, television wasn't that broad in Europe when I was over there. And uh, I was a bit of a, uh, an, well, I was a, I, I wouldn't say I was a clown, but people thought my, they loved my accent like I loved their accent. So we have a, a mutual admiration society sitting at a table over a beer because I was fascinated with the way that their dialect was. And they all, they couldn't get over my accent. And 
course, uh, you know, they all thought I was from Texas. Like, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Tennessee. And as soon as you say Tennessee, they'd say Elvis. And then, then it went from there. So, you know, they were, they were a very, uh, behind the times country, uh, Scotland and Ireland was when I was over there. Was that where you spent most of your time with Scotland and Ireland? I, I, I was in England. I stayed in England. I stayed in Scotland and then I, I played a lot in Ireland and Scotland and I played wherever I could get in a golf tournament. I played. So it was all over. I didn't know if it was, you know, Germany and, and yeah, we went and- everywhere and I, I hadn't, I didn't have a clue where I was. I mean, I, you know, I would think when I, when I first got over there, I was so naive. I thought, well, if I'm going to go from London to Germany, that's got to be about a four-hour flight. Well, it was about a 35-minute flight because it was like going from uh, Orlando to Atlanta. It's not that far. <laughs> so I, did, I didn't realize until I got to Europe how big the United States was. Uh, I, that was amazing to me. And, uh, and I fell in love with the history. I, I loved uh, what I learned. I went to more castles and, and more battlefields than anything I'd ever seen in my life. I, I was fascinated by Waterloo. Uh, it was just, it was crazy. I, I and I, I think it was probably from, uh, maybe being a, uh, an only child. I'd never really traveled that much. My parents didn't have the money to travel and I loved traveling. You know, I, I, I couldn't fly enough. I couldn't go enough. I love to go. Uh, sitting still is not my, that's not my idea of fun. I like to go. So Europe at that point was still pretty divided with the Eastern Bloc, Western Bloc. So I'm guessing you probably didn't get to see a lot of Europe. I didn't. And, and I didn't understand that. I, I was really confused about Northern Ireland. I, I didn't understand the Eastern Bloc. I didn't understand any of that. And I had to learn. Uh, fortunately, I had some people that kind of took me under their wing and, and taught me a little bit more than I, I might not have survived if I hadn't had those people helping me. So Love Stetson Athletics? Then join the team behind experience. the team. Donate to the Hatter Athletic Fund to help keep your Stetson Hatters at the top of elite competition. If you're interested in donating to provide opportunities for Stetson student-athletes, log on to GoHatters.com and click on the Hatter Athletic Fund link in the Support the Hatters tab. And you mentioned a person I was going to ask you about. You growing up in Memphis, obviously the Elvis connection. Talk a little bit about your connections, if there were any, with Elvis. My dad, I told you, worked for Pepsi Cola, and uh, every summer, I, I from the time I was fourteen on, I was working at with my dad or at the plant to earn some money. And when I was about sixteen or seventeen, I got to where I could drive some of the delivery trucks, the smaller delivery trucks. And one afternoon, my my dad came to me. He says, "Hey, I got this." delivery I want you to make. He handed me the delivery slip and I looked at it and it was an address on there, Highway 51. So I I got in the truck. All I knew I was leaving and I, I got a Pepsi and I got in the truck and I pull out of the plant and I'm heading and I get out on Highway 51 and I'm going up and down the highway and I can't, I can't find this address, you know, and one of those things, they send you for a delivery. You didn't want to call back to the plant and say, hey, I can't find this place. It's got to be a I'm thinking it's a grocery store but it didn't say anything so I'm driving up and down highway 51 and finally I I've made about five trips up and down the area and I looked at this one little small grocery store and that number didn't match and so finally I went I had a dime and I went to a payphone the kids don't even know what payphones are but you and I do so I went to a payphone I put the dime in I called back to the plant and I got my dad on the phone I said dad I'm sorry I hate to bother you but I I've looked 
everywhere. I said, did you put the wrong address on this delivery slip? And he started laughing. And I knew right away that this was some kind of joke. And he says, no, he says, you can't find it. I said, no, I can't. He says, where are you? And I told him, he says, well, look across the street. And it was Graceland. It was Elvis's house. So I drive over to the gate and I, you know, the guy lets me in and I go up and I had to take and put post mix into the fountain in the pool at Elvis's house back in the backyard where he had his pool. He had a little house back there. So I'm in there putting the tanks in and hooking it all up for him. And Elvis comes walking in and there, boom, there he is standing in front of me. So we talked for about 10 minutes and I got in the, the truck and went back to the plant. But I never, I never forgave my dad for doing that to me because I, I felt so stupid that I couldn't find that address. And if he had just told me to take it to Graceland, I'd have been there in no time. You know, been no problem. So you have another another uh, tie with fame and the PGA Tour and your cousin. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Tom and, and how you got to know him growing up. You know, I, did, I didn't know Tom at all growing up. And uh, when I got on the PGA Tour in 76, we really looked a lot alike then because everybody's hair was longer and my hair wasn't white then. It was, you know, it was kind of brownish gold red. And, you know, everywhere we went, people people thought I was Tom's younger brother. Well, I wasn't and I'm older than Tom. And uh, so I, I constantly had to tell people, no, I'm not his brother or nothing. And my uncle's name was Tom Watson. And he's the one that told me that we were related. So obviously being a Monday qualifier, Tom Watson and I did not run in the same circles. So we would cross paths. We would cross paths in the locker room. We cross paths hitting balls. But the, the probably the funniest story uh, about Tom, uh, I was playing in California. I'd actually qualified for a tournament in uh, Napa, California, and I was on the putting green on Wednesday of the pro am. The, the rabbits. We didn't get to play in the pro am, but we could practice on pro am day. So I'm on the putting green that. Wednesday and it was about noon and the afternoon wave of the pro was getting ready to tee off. And all of a sudden I felt this rustling, a lot of commotion on the putting green. And the next thing you know, this hand taps me on the right shoulder and I turn around and I'm looking at president Ford. I'm looking him right in the eye and there's president Ford standing. And he goes, I'm really looking forward to playing with you today. This is going to be so much fun. You know, the secret service was around and I'm getting ready to tell him that, well, you're not playing with me. And Tom walks up and he says, President Ford, this is Larry. I'm Tom. So they shake hands. And, and all of a sudden, the Secret Service blocked me off like I was a terrorist or something. You know, I went from shaking hands with the President of the United States to being blocked out. And then it, everybody left. So that was, you know, but Tom and I probably, uh, we had more interaction after I went to work for Titus and Scotty Cameron than ever did as a player because I was so far removed, you know, from anything. But occasionally I'd be standing on the putting green and I might have played good in a tournament. He'd walk by and say, hey, nice round yesterday. And that, that was it. But uh, we didn't have any childhood interactions at all because, like I said, we, we didn't travel. My parents didn't travel. We must have been the black sheep of the Watson family, I think, is what we were. We certainly weren't the wealthy side. Did Tom grow up in Memphis as well? No, he grew up in Kansas City. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was different, yeah, different was branch of the family. But, you know, the funny, the funny thing about uh, I was talking to Tom's caddy, Bruce Edwards one day, and, and, and we were talking about the similarities. Tom, Tom was a catcher in baseball. He was a quarterback in football. We played the same sports. The most ironic thing is the way we signed our last name. I'd been signing my last name in script because the kids today don't write in script. You and I do. But when I signed my name, I'd been signing my name the same way since I was probably 12 years old. As I remember 
And the way I signed my last name, Watson, and the way he signs his last name is almost identical. It's crazy. Wow. It's just freaky crazy, but it is what it is. So you play on the PGA Tour, decide you got to get out and make a real living after you've done that. Are you doing other things while you're playing on the tour to make money or – or is it just all golf? Yeah, I did a lot of corporate outings. I did a lot of corporate outings, and my sponsor was the president of Holiday Inn in Memphis. So I did a lot of work for Holiday Inn for him, corporate outings. I did a lot of pro-ams. And back in those days, you you had a lot of state opens that you could play in. So I found places to play and make enough money to scrape by. But, you know, and my boys don't understand it when we talk. Back in those days, in the 60s 70s that area you know gas was 29 cents a gallon when i first started playing the tour and i, I thought it was crazy when gas went to 85 cents a gallon and uh you could buy an airplane ticket from you know memphis to los angeles for 150 dollars round trip so things were so different then that the amount of money you needed uh to play golf was not astronomical but you know i had a, a, a i had a practice marriage in that scenario time there that I was married for a while and that went away and then I was single. So when you're single and traveling around the world, your expenses aren't aren't that bad. You can stay with a lot of friends. I stayed with a lot of friends, played a lot of golf with friends. And uh, it was a time that I would say was uh, I'll never forget because I met so many people traveling around the world and across the country, played so many golf courses. It was, it was, uh, I guess it was a, uh, adolescent way of being an adult is about the biggest thing I can say is I didn't, I don't think I grew up till I was probably 40, you know, and it was just the way it was. So you reach the point early eighties, I guess, where you decide playing golf for the rest of your life for, for a career is not the way you're going to go. You got to decide what's, what's next. Well, I didn't decide that. Cause I, like I said, I was too stupid to quit. The PGA tour decided it for me. I lost my card and I, I said, well, I guess I better go find a job. And my last, my last tournament on tour and, and, uh, that year was at Disney. And I said, you know, this looks like a really good town to live in. So I, uh, I, I got a condo in, uh, Orlando and I was probably, I was going to go play in Asia. I was going to go play the Asian tour. And as I sat around, I, I said, you know, if I can't play here, why am I going to go halfway around the world trying to play again? Maybe I should go get a job. And the next thing you know, I had a, a short stint with, one of the radio stations here in town. And then I interviewed for the job as the public relations director at uh, Orlando International Airport. And then uh, Paul Mears of Mears Transportation found out that I had interviewed for that job. And the next thing you know, I ended up being the PR director for Paul Mears, Mears Transportation. And a year later, I was the vice president. I was running the limousine division and I ran Mears Transportation for about five years. So that was a major departure. Yeah, that was a huge departure. But if you've worked at a Pepsi plant, you can just about you, you've learned a lot working at a Pepsi plant and delivering soft drinks all around. I can tell you that you learned a lot about the business world. So a lot of limousine service in Orlando. Or was it more about buses and, and transport? Well, when I first started, there wasn't there wasn't any company that had limousines. And we had the first limousines with Grayline. We brought the first limousines to town in 84. And then I talked Paul Mears into getting in the bus business and then the company really took off. It started to really grow and they have huge, probably one of the largest transportation companies in, you know, central Florida now. And I think they just sold last year for 
bukus of money to a company out of Miami. So it, that was a great experience for me. I never had to deal with unions. I had to negotiate with the Teamsters. I had a, at one point, I think I had like 400 employees that, that I had to work with and juggle all that stuff. But it was a learning experience. It, every job I've ever had has been a learning experience for me. It's always it's always great to learn the difference between managing and leadership. It's two totally different things. So you, you have to co-mingle those sometimes. But the business world was fascinating to me. So after Mears, you move on, you move on after five years. I know golf is never far from your mind and you get back into <laughs> golf business eventually, but where do you go from Mears? Well, after Mears, I, I, I went into business with a friend of mine in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and we started a limousine manufacturing company building stretch limousines and selling them in, in the country. And we did very well. And then we were bought out by our competitor. And uh, then I said, you know, I'm getting pretty close to 50. So I guess it's time to brush the dust off of my golf clubs and start getting ready for the champions tour. So I started playing four spotters around the country, trying to play competitive golf again. And I met a lot of people at Mirrors, big Fortune 500 companies. And I started doing a lot of corporate outings. So I was doing about 10, 20 corporate outings a year around the country making a living and doing really good, enjoying doing corporate outings and doing speaking engagements and playing golf with people. And it was a lot of fun. And then as I got closer to 50, I started playing more competitive golf. And then I, that's when I ran into Scotty Cameron and met Scotty. And from there, uh, I ended up. Our local bottler, Coca-Cola Beverages Florida, is a proud sponsor of Stetson Athletics. They make sure you have the perfect addition to any game day. The refreshing taste of an ice-cold Coke. Stetson Athletics and Coke Florida, a winning combination. So let's talk about that. You work, you work for Titleist, you work for Scotty Cameron. Uh, it's a whole different animal. Well, it was, it was really odd. You know, I met Scotty in at a tournament. He came up and tried to uh, see if I would try one of his putters. I liked it and I tried to buy it. And he says, Oh, you can't buy it. I'm going to give it to you. I couldn't believe that. Nobody ever given me equipment. You always had to buy it. So uh, we struck up a friendship and the next thing you know, uh, he, he inquired when I, as I traveled around the country trying to four spot, if I didn't make it, which was most of the time, he said, if I didn't make it, would you, want to stay there and try to rep me as a, as a player rep and promote my equipment. And I, I, I kind of looked at him at the beginning and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to make this work? What, you know, what, what are we going to do? But we kind of worked out a, a deal of what he would pay me. And so I did that. Uh, I think I worked about 12 events for Scotty uh, when we first met and that was in 94. And, uh, Along about September, Scotty called me uh, one day and he said, hey, listen, I got a phone call from this guy on the East Coast. He wants to come out and look at my business. And I said, well, who is it? And he says, some guy named Uline from Titleist. And I said, Scotty, do you know who Wally Uline is? And he goes, no, he just works at Titleist. I said, well, he doesn't work at Titleist. He's the president and CEO of Titleist. So Wally went out, talked to Scotty, and they talked a little bit. The next thing you know, Titleist acquires Scotty Cameron and part of the acquisition was me. So I go from <laughs> being a part-time worker to working full-time for Titleist on the tour. And then uh, I think uh, the first contract I had with them, I was supposed to work like 20 weeks uh, and they were going to pay me weekly like a, a contractor, which was fine with me because I could still play golf and do the things I wanted to. And 
that 20 turned into about 30. And the next thing you know, I was a full-time employee. And, you know, 18 years later, I, I retired from there. So it was it was quite the ride. And working for Titleist was something. So you were still still in the golf world. So were you traveling around to, to PGA events then and just a rep Titleist? That's what I was doing. I was the Scotty Cameron rep on the PGA Tour and that that was my job, making putters for the best players in the world. And then I went all over where I went to Europe. I worked on the European tour. I would go over there and make putters for the guys in our truck. And, you know, we were at every event. I'd work 48, 48 events a year, 48 weeks a year. So I was on the road and Barbara was at home raising our girls and being a, a, a influence in everybody's life and our family. And, uh, you know, it uh, it takes a special lady to be married to somebody that's gone all the time. You no know, I was gone four days a week. So, eighteen years with Titleist. What was it that you decided to, it was time to hang that up and do something else? Well, it wasn't wasn't so much that um, Titleist uh, was about to form a. Um, they were getting ready to go public. They knew they wanted to the the, the Fortune five hundred company that um, had owned that company. And uh, Fortune Brands owned Titleist, and they wanted to sell it off. And then they ended up selling it. When they did, to get the IPO to look good, you know, they had a lot of us employees that were older that could could take an early retirement package. And, you know, I looked at it, and the retirement package that that they were offering me at the time, I said, well, I'll never get a pension program that's any better than this. So, I mean, it was one of those offers that you couldn't refuse. And with that, uh, there was a real good compensation plan and you could go to work the next day. So if you took retirement on Monday, you could work for another company the next day. And I ended up doing that. I, I left Titleist and started teaching right away. I was teaching tour players and then I, I ended up being a consultant for another golf company for a year. But my passion then was to teach. So that's what I did the most is teach other tour players. And it was great. I had a great time doing that. So when did the idea come into your mind to become a college coach? Never came to my mind. That was all Casey Alexander's doing. So uh, uh, Casey was our basketball coach at the time, and Casey and I had met. Uh, Barbara and I had uh, moved to the land and built a house at Victoria Hills, and our house was on the back of the range. And uh, she kind of predicted it. She looked out the window about the second day we were in our house, and she said, "Honey, you know that's that's what you're going to do when you retire." I said, "Do what?" And she pointed these kids out hitting balls on the back range at Victoria Hill. She said, that's the college team practicing out there. I didn't even know there was a college in DeLand at the time. You know, I'd been in Orlando all the time. I didn't know Stetson was here. So uh, I laughed at her. I said, I'm not going to teach kids. I'm not going to be a college coach. I teach tour players. So within about six months, I met Casey and he and I played a lot of golf together. And the next thing you know, he called me one day. He says, hey, I want to play golf with you this afternoon. I'm bringing a friend from school. And it was Jeff Altier. So I played golf with Jeff and Casey and another one of our, our board of directors uh, at the time. And uh, we went out and played golf. And then the next thing you know, uh, Jeff and I kind of start visiting because it's time Coach Weichel was here. And Casey uh, it just thought that it would be great if I came. Well, Jeff said, well, we have a golf coach. I'm not going to, the man's been here 50 years. I'm not going to let him go. Well, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Coach Weichel's grandson, Walker, uh, graduates from high school, signs a baseball contract, and Coach Weichel decides to retire. So thanks to Coach Weichel retiring, I think that that was what moved me into the spot of being the coach here at Stetson. Jeff said, well, I, I got this guy in the wings. We'll make this move. And uh, 
here I am eight years later. So you got to spend a year working with Bob uh, as a, with the golf program. What was that like in the transition? Well, I trust me, Bob was fantastic and I, I needed it because I, I had never played golf in college. I didn't really uh, understand college golf. I'd been around the professional sports. I taught professionals, played professionals like we talked, but I had not been around the college uh, arena at all. And, you know, when I worked at Titleist, uh, you had a support staff that was huge. Uh, I had two secretaries when I was at Titleist that, that did a, most of my paperwork. And then all of a sudden I get into this uh, scope of how you work here and you're a one man band and poor Bob, you know, he'd done it for years. And all of a sudden you're making schedules, you're doing budgets, you're driving to tournaments, you're scheduling tournaments, you're practicing every afternoon, you're teaching and all the things you have to do, which a lot of fun. It kept me very busy, but I had no idea what a college coach really had to do. So it was a, uh, it was an eye opening experience and it, it was fun. It was fun. It is fun. <laughs> no doubt. So what are some common myths about being both a college golf coach or, and being a professional golfer? What are some myths that people might have about that? And, and uh, what's the real, what's the real truth? I think the, the biggest difference that I see that it takes me time to explain to the boys that are playing college uh, these kids have a ton of talent. There's probably not a young man on my team that's not a better player today than I was when I went out to play the tour as far as hitting the ball, swinging it. But they don't really understand how to play golf yet. And they don't play for money. Once you start playing for money, you understand that it's only about the score. It's only about what you shoot. It doesn't make any difference. If it's pretty, it doesn't make any difference as long as it repeats that's that's it and to a professional standpoint all that person has to do is play golf the biggest drawback for the kids in college is they have to manage their own life their social life academic life and then they have to try to compete at golf in a very limited time frame you got ncaa guidelines only allow us to practice 20 hours a week 20 hours a week i do 20 hours of practice in two days when i play golf you can't exceed, you can't exceed five hours in one day, five hours. That was at lunch. You know? So, I, I mean, it, the kids today, they are really under a lot of restraints that probably hold them back to being as good as they could. If all they had to do for eight or 12 hours a day was work on their golf game. Uh, but the biggest misconception that most of the kids that I talk to today have is they, I think that they lose sight of, the bottom line in college and all sports is you, you have to win. You got to shoot. You got to shoot low. You got to beat the guy in tennis. You got to outrun the guy in cross country. Uh, you got to score more points in basketball. And all that's about is you have to go as low as you can in whatever sport you're playing. Uh, sometimes I think a lot of the kids, the first thing that hits them when they come out of high school to college, not they're not ready for the amount of time they have to dedicate to their sport when they get to college. Uh, high school season lasts six weeks, and then they're off to play basketball. They're going to play soft, you know, they're going to play some other sport. They play in the summer, but they don't have the practice regimen in the summer that we have. And you see that hit the freshmen when they first come to school, you know, they eight weeks into school in 90 degree heat, they've already 
practice more and played more than they do a whole season in high school. And they look around and go, we got to do this the rest of this semester. And then we're going to do it again in the spring. And then they're going to travel and do their homework. And uh, it's a lot to digest uh, and take in when you're 17, 18 years old. So what are some of the things you wish you had known before you started out in this life of golf? I think to be quite honest with you, Ricky, golf is probably one of the greatest educational experiences anyone can get. Girls, boys, it doesn't make a difference because golf is one of those uh, sports that it teaches you that everything isn't going to be perfect. You know, uh, you don't get a perfect lie every time. The wind doesn't lay down. The wind can blow. It can rain. There's so many outside agencies that uh, attack a player uh, that you kind of get prepared for the ups and downs that you're going to see in life. And, you know, no, it, no one ever says this, this is supposed to be easy. And college golf is definitely not easy. I mean, just in the time that I took over from Bob to now, when I first started coaching in college, if your team shot 300, that's four boys averaging 75. That was a respectable score. You're probably going to finish fourth in a tournament. If you shoot 300 today, you're finishing last. So the change in the sport, how much better the players are today in college, the regiment of uh, scheduling that the college coaches put together now, this is, it's like playing the mini tour. This is just one level below the Corn Ferry Tour. Kids that, kids that can play in college, they're ready to play professionally. The greatest thing about golf to me is, is the life lessons it teaches you. It teaches you, you know, you can play great one day and you play horrible the next day. And it, you find out if that changes your personality. You find out, how do I react when I play good? How do I react when I play poorly? How do I react when I play great and the team plays poorly? It just teaches you what you're going to find in what I call the real world. And I tell that to the boys quite often. I mean, at the beginning of a school year, the, I'll ask the boys, how many of you want to play the PGA Tour? And every one of them almost will raise their hand. By the third week of practice, Three of them already said, I'm not good enough to play the tour. I'm lucky that I'm in college playing, but this is probably my last hurrah at competitive golf at this, you know, I'm not going to be able to make a living playing golf. And they're great golfers. They're just not the, the next echelon of golfers. I think that what happens here and what I like is being able to teach kids how to play. I love teaching. I love teaching kids shots. The biggest job I have is try to mentor these kids to get them ready for the next step in life. And by all means, I'm not a perfect person. I make mistakes every day. But most of the time when I go to practice every day, it's, it's a life lesson that I'm really concentrating on teaching as opposed to a golf lesson. They all understand golf lessons. Life lessons are a little different. You know, how to be organized, how to, how to, put up with somebody teasing you or, or maybe your girlfriend just broke up with you and you still got to practice today. So you suck it up. It's, it, we got to go, you know, or, or you made an F in a class and you're worried about that class, but you still have to practice. You got to go back and do your paper, redo your paper, and you got to pull that F up because we need good grades. So I, I think that golf is probably the most uh, magnifying sport when you make a mistake, there's no one to blame. You can't, you can't point and say, well, he didn't block. And you, well, this guy was taller than me. You know, the ball's sitting still, nobody's hitting you. Nobody's throwing anything at you. It's all you. There's, 
excuses. You can make excuses all day, but the bottom line, it's, it was all up to you. And some of the kids aren't quite ready for that uh, because they've been protected. Uh, this is a funny generation. I learned uh, probably the, one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life was when uh, uh, Jeff, our AD, scheduled the leadership uh, uh, academy that, at school. And when Becky came in and taught that class, it couldn't have been at a better time for me because I learned so much about millennials and how to communicate with this generation. And it was a learning experience for me. And I I grew up in a time when a coach said, go do something. You didn't dare ask why. And, and he wasn't going to explain it to you. You know, when you and I grew up playing football, you didn't take a water break. If you wanted water, you were a sissy. And now we schedule water breaks because we're smart enough to know if we don't, the poor kids are going to, you know, dehydrate and be sick and we're going to have a problem. So as a generation of coaches, we've all gotten smarter. And as a generation of players, these kids are smarter than we were. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a learning activity for me just as much as it is for the boys. At Main Street Community Bank of Florida, community is our middle name. Just like the Stetson Hatters are our hometown team, Main Street is your hometown lender. You'll work with local lenders, making local decisions. Decisions that support your community. Main Street Community Bank of Florida. Familiar name, familiar faces, familiar bank. All loans are subject to credit approval. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. You mentioned the 20 hour practice rule that's in place and it's a you know, NCAA wide rule where you can only practice 20 hours a week in season. But golf is a sport that doesn't require a full team practice. If you're a player and you're dedicated to it, you can go play golf on your own. That's right. And that's that's what's really important. You know, the, the one thing I try to stress to the boys and I've found that this generation is probably not as statistically um, minded as my generation was, or I was as a player, I looked at statistics all the time because it told me where I had to practice. And uh, I tried to point out to the kids that, look, I can only make you practice so many hours a day, but if you're deficient in an area, now that we have our practice facility that Mr. Edinger has helped us get, there's no reason our kids aren't getting better because now they they've got a place they can go that's their own they can practice they can practice any shot they want to practice and if they'll address their shortcomings and be honest with themselves they can go get better whether i make them do it or i'm standing there or not so yeah it and it i see that my kids are getting better because of the facility right away i've seen that i've seen the girls team get better i've seen the boys get better uh my boys probably want to go to a a a different facility where they can hit drivers more than ours because they like to hit a lot of drivers and the girls aren't necessarily that way, but uh, you know, it's, it's a learning experience for me. I wouldn't hit as many drivers. I'd hit a lot more short shots because that's where you save the, that's where you save the score, but it is what it is. So what accomplishments in your career? I mean, you've had a long career and a lot of success. What accomplishments in your career you've been most proud of? I, I think that uh, I don't know that I've had any real golf accomplishments that I'm crazy about at Stetson other than the players. I think uh, some of the boys I've had that graduated on my team and then I came back to see them two or three years later and got to play golf with them. When they told me 
the difference that I made or, or something that I told them they carry on with them today. And it made a difference. That's my golf accomplishment. You know, I've had players like Dustin Dingus that his first year was under coach Weichel and me. And then he played three years for me. Now he's a chiropractor. He's done great. I hear from Dustin a lot. And he tells me every time he talks to me, he tells me a lesson that he's taken forward by what he learned here. Chase Levesque calls me. He works for uh, a great golf company now. And, and, you know, he's told me that his job at Oakley, he's reminded a lot of things that I told him when we were practicing golf. He relates that to this. Uh, I just saw Dirk Cooler last week and, and Dirk's now uh, in the uh, accounting business. He's, he's a, a financial planner up in Indianapolis. And he told me right away, what what he learned playing for me, discipline, how to accept not being successful, how to handle that has helped him in his career. I think probably my best two accomplishments here, to be quite honest with you, have probably been Baylor, Payne, and uh, fortunately for me, getting Chris back this year is is a, a real gift, a selfish gift. Uh, but, you know, Baylor was, uh, he was a diamond in the rough and, and he came in and, and in four years, I don't think I ever told that kid anything to do that he did. He never questioned it. He just did it. And he won a tournament before he graduated. And I've never been so happy for anybody for a win in my life. And uh, the same thing with Christopher. I, I, I probably, uh, Chris and I laugh about it all the time. I've probably watched Chris, you know, as a coach, 85 different holes in his career. I don't think he's, he's probably, 40 something under par for those 85 holes. And I, I tease him all the time. I says, too bad. I can't caddy for you. You play really well. And we laugh about it, but you know, I think watching the boys mature uh, is my greatest feat here. I, I love watching them grow up. I, I love watching them relate to themselves as freshmen and then tell me, coach, when I was a freshman, I must've been a, a pain in the butt. I must've been a joke. I, I didn't even know what I was doing. And then watch, Watching them mentor the young boys. You know, when I see Christopher take the freshman under his wing and try to tell them what to do, uh, that makes a big difference to me because that's, I, I think that's most of my job, you know, and I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Uh, I, and I've always known my dad used to say, Hey, if you're not working, you're not going to make any mistakes. If you're working, you're going to make a mistake. So that's the way it is. You, you learn by your mistakes, you move on, you try not to make them again. And uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot every day, just communication. That's the biggest thing I try to teach my kids is that we can't function if we don't communicate. And, you know, they're, they're so attached to those phones. It's very difficult for them to look you in the eye sometimes and have that conversation. And, and most of the boys on my team, I'd say, are getting better at that. They, they'll come talk to me, and I like that. I think it helps them. It's going to prepare them for the next level. So this past year has been especially difficult one for a lot of folks at Stetson, but you in particular, um, the fire where you lose, you lose access to your office and you know, you rupture your Achilles tendon and have to try to keep coaching through that two surgeries and all that. What is it that motivates you to keep going through all of that uh, adversity that you've had to go through this year? The, the kids, you know, I, I look at them and I know the uh, I know the disappointment if we hadn't been able to go on. I think the fire was horrible for the school that had to get through. 
fortunately for us, it, it, it interrupted my life from an, an office standpoint, but it, it didn't really impact the boys because we had the facility. Uh, it didn't burn our van. We were still able to travel. We, you know, the other thing, the Achilles is just, it just goes to show you that one day, one minute, you're great. And the next minute, there's something that's a problem. And um, I, I was very fortunate uh, that after I hurt my Achilles and had the surgery that I had a wife that stepped in and helped me because uh, the boys mean a lot to her too. So she knew how important that was. And we, we got through the season and it was, it was tough. It was really tough, but <clears throat> that's what you do. That's the job. That's what you do. So you and I both come from a generation where uh, we, we spend a lot more time reading than we do maybe watching or, or on our phones. So what books are you reading? What authors do you enjoy? You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I like um, Clancy, Dean Koontz, uh, Baldacci. I, I, my biggest problem with reading is I'm the, I'm the kind of reader. If I start a book, I, ca- I can't quit. I'm not able to read two chapters. I have to read it. And so I don't read as much as I used to. When I, when I traveled 48 weeks a year, I used to read all the time because I'd read on airplanes. And then I'd get to the hotel and I'd read till two in the morning. Uh, now doing this job, I can't do it anymore. I can't read while I'm driving a van and I, I, I can't stay up that late. But I, I think that reading was huge for me. Uh, reading uh, when I was a young man helped me a lot because it exposed me to a world that I knew was out there that I hadn't been able to see. Uh, I feel the same way about travel. I don't, I don't think we can travel enough. When you travel to different parts of the country, you see how people live in the western part of the United States and the southwest. You see the different culture. You see the different uh, background that they have to, you know, deal with. I know the first year I took the, the team, we went to Boise State, and the kids had most of the kids on the team were from Florida. They never played at three thousand feet. They didn't. They didn't even understand the difference, and they were fascinated getting up every morning and seeing snow on the mountains and. They'd never been that close to the moon. You know, they, they didn't realize it looked like the moon was just right on top of those mountains. It was crazy. But uh, I, I love to see the look on their face when we get to travel. We One of the best trips I think we ever made, we went and played at George Washington's tournament. I mean, sorry, Georgetown's tournament. And we spent the whole day in downtown Washington, D.C. And three of my kids had never been to Washington. The mom had never been to Washington, D.C. And I think just watching them see that firsthand. And, you know, when you travel as, when you've been as fortunate as I have to travel all over the world, you don't realize how some of these kids have been, uh, you know, they just haven't had the opportunity to travel and see this. And then when you see it through their eyes, you, you, you see it for a third time in a whole different light than you saw it the first time. And it, uh, I, I think that's my biggest deals. I love, to read and experience this, but then I like to see it firsthand, but more important, I like to see the look on someone's face that has never been there before. So how do you like to spend your time away from golf and coaching? I mean, what, what do you, what do you do to, to, there's not much time left, but what do you, what do you enjoy doing? Well, you know, Barbara and I play golf together a lot. And then I, I probably one of the biggest movie people you ever, I love movies. I love to go to movies. I like to watch movies on television uh, and I'm, uh, I'm a huge history buff. I love to watch the history channel. I, I 
I loved, uh, I think the time that I spent in Europe, my fact that my dad fought in World War II in Korea, I, I watched those documentaries about what was going on in the world, how that all developed. And uh, it's better for me than what I learned when I was in school. You know, in the history class, I, I got a snippet of what I see now on TV. And I, I, I thoroughly, I tell Barbara all the time, I swear I lived in, in that era. I think I've been here before. I, I, I think I crossed these mountains out here in, in Utah on the way to California in, in the 1800s. I swear I've been here before, but I don't know. It, uh, I love history. I love history. So one of the questions I have on my list that I ask people, and you've already mentioned Elvis, Tom Watson, and President Gerald Ford. So give me another famous person you've met where and when? I've been so fortunate. The jobs that I have had, I've been so fortunate that those jobs are what put me in a, in a place to meet somebody. So, I mean, if you go down, if you go down the list, the boys look in my phone, they look in the contacts in my phone all the time and they go, coach, you, you got Adam Scott's number. You got Tiger's number. Well, I I used to work with those people. Uh, They, they were, you know, they were co-workers. I had to build putters for them. I went to their house. It was, you know, when I was working at Titleist, it was probably tougher on my daughters because they would tell somebody they went to Tiger's house and they think they were lying. But or they told them Sergio came to our house for dinner and they would think they were lying. But they weren't. They, they And they didn't think about those guys any other way that that's just a friend of my dad. They, they weren't anybody superstar. They just guys that come over to the house and my dad builds golf clubs for them. You know, that was no big deal. But you know, working at Mears, I met a lot of, I, I think one of the people uh, that I met was Coach V. I, I got to stand in the front of the Stouffer's Hotel, and he had been here for a meeting, a coach's meeting, and I, I visited with him for about 30 minutes on the front door of the Stouffer's Hotel down in front of, um, uh, you know, SeaWorld. And that man was the most charismatic man I think I've ever been around. and. He just moved me. He, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I spent yeah, I spent a lot of time with Payne Stewart on the tour. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with guys when I was playing golf. And remember at Grand Cypress, you know, probably 15 of the top players in the world were members there. And we all practiced and hung out together. So it was like it was like the PGA Tour subplanted to Orlando, Florida. and and it was all because of my job. It was because of where I was, but I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of what I call famous people. And not, um, not all of them are always nice or good. And uh, I've met a lot of good people. Uh, and I was able to, I think I was able to see through some of that stardom too, that just because you're a star doesn't mean you're somebody that should be looked up to or uh, idolized, you know, uh, Michael Jordan, when I met him, was as nice as he could be to me. <clears throat> I met Tom Brady and made him a putter, and you would have thought I'd known Tom Brady for 10 years. He wrote me a handwritten note and said, anytime I'm in your area, you want to come up here and watch me play, you just call this number and I'll get you tickets. And then he introduced me to his dad. So I, I said, you know, most people don't take the time to introduce you to their father if they're just wanting something. So I, I've met a lot of people that made an impact. I I got to spend some time in, in at Pebble Beach one year, and I, I, I spent. I, I was shaking myself. I, I talked to Clint Eastwood in the morning, Bill Russell at lunch, and then I spent two hours with Reggie Jackson uh, making him putters and working on his putters in the van. I'm going, I, 
how does a kid from Memphis, Tennessee sit and talk to these world icons of sports and, and move? How do you do that? How do you get that lucky? And, and it's all because of who I was fortunate enough to work for, you know? So I've been very lucky in my life. I've been blessed. And one name you didn't mention that, you know, everybody in the golfing world revered so much was Arnold Palmer. Give me an Arnold Palmer yep. story. I met Arnold. It was really funny. Uh, I, I met Arnold for the first time in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and I had missed I had missed qualifying uh, shock. So I'd gone out to the private airfield there in Pinehurst, and I was going to be picked up by the corporate plane to go do a corporate outing. So they were sending a plane for me to go. And when I got to the uh, little airfield there at Pinehurst, when I walked through the gate, I noticed the plane over to the right was Arnold's plane. It had the umbrella on it. So I was such an aviation nut. I walked over, I walked over and I'm like looking in the window of his plane. The door wasn't open, you know, and I'm looking in the window of the plane. And the next thing you know, the electric gate by the plane opens up and I see this Cadillac coming and I'm going, Oh my God, I bet this is, who's this coming in? And I'm, you know, standing there looking in this guy's plane. When the, about that time, the, the person from the, the, Flight ops guy comes out and says, Mr. Watson, your, your plane's landing. It's taxiing over here. He's going to taxi right here and pick you up. I said, okay. So I stand up and I'm watching my plane taxi in and I turn around and Arnold is getting out of the Cadillac that just drove through the gate. And he says, hello. And I said, well, hi, how you doing? And about that time, the plane picking me up was a new jet. It just came in and Arnold sees this plane and he goes, who? whose plane is that? And I said, well, that's the, that's my plane. I said, that's my plane. That was a big mistake to say, but I said, that's my plane. He said, that's your plane. I said, well, it's not my plane. And the next, you know, he runs over and I see the pilots in the plane coming to pick me up looking at Arnold and their eyes are, you know, they're about this big and all Arnold wants to do is get on that airplane. So he, the door opens and he's already going up the step and they're coming out to shake his hand. He's going up the steps. Well, lo and behold, Arnold and I start up a friendship over the airplanes. So we talk and we visit and uh, he said, where are you playing next? And I said, well, I don't know. I got to get in. He said, well, if you ever get in anywhere and you play, you, you let me know, we'll play a practice round together. We did that about four months later up at uh, Quail Valley there. And it was fantastic to do that. And then later when I was working at Mears, I, I did Arnold's gala for the hospital, for the Arnold Palmer hospital. And uh, I did all the transportation for him and Winnie. And uh, the first night of the gala, I get a phone call that afternoon about four o'clock in my office. And it was Miss Palmer. And she goes, listen, uh, Arnold wants to know if you can uh, have a limo pick us up here at the condo at Bay Hill. And I said, sure, no problem. You know, what, what time do you need that, Miss Palmer? And she goes, well, he, he would like to get picked up about 630. And I said, well, that's no problem. He said, well, he has another request. And I said, okay, what's that? No big deal. She said, well, he wants you to drive. And I said, well, I don't usually, you know, I didn't say, hey, I run the company. I don't usually drive. But I said, well, I said, okay, I don't usually drive, but I'll come get you guys. So I drove the limousine over to the house and I pulled up at the condo and it's about 615 because if you're not early, you're late. Arnold's coming out and he's got his tuxedo on and he's yelling at Winnie, come on, we're going to be late. And he's already 15 minutes early. She's got rollers in her hair and she comes down the stairs, gets in the car and we're driving over to the uh, 
we're driving over to the Stouffer's hotel and he says, Larry, he says, I got to make this speech tonight. I'm going to try it out on you. So he leans up to the divider of the window of the limousine and he starts saying the speech that he's going to give that night. And uh, I'm listening to it. And finally he goes, I hell, I can't do this. I'm just going to get up there and talk. I says, well, just make sure you have a couple of scotches before you do that and you'll be okay. So, uh, he was, he was something. And then that night uh, I drove him back and Greg Gumble and his wife were in a car going back to the Bay Hill Lodge that night. So it was like, every time I turned around, there was somebody else that introduced me to somebody else and somebody else. So it was, but Arnold was, he was fantastic. Show your Stetson spirit and get your green on with officially licensed tees, sweats, hoodies, and more. Go to www.shopgohatters.com. All your Hatters gear is just a click away. Visit www.shopgohatters.com. I got a ton of other questions I had on my list to ask. We're already an hour and 20 minutes into this. Yeah, so sorry uh, about I, that. Do, I do want to talk about Stetson Golf. Yes. So obviously the practice facility is a huge um, up, upgrade for both men's and women's golf teams and Sandy Edinger and his commitment to the program. Talk a little bit about what Sandy's done and what that practice facility means to you. Well, from the day I got to Stetson, I was looking for a place to have a practice facility. And uh, when I met Sandy and, and he and I talked, he said, what do you need? I said, I need a practice facility. And uh, he asked Danielle, what do you need? She said, I need a new van. And uh, I never thought it would, would happen. But here's a man who has a vision, and he's not going to stop. Uh, and he's done such a marvelous job to give us the money it took to build a first-class practice facility. And when we get it finished, it will be – one of the finest facilities anywhere in the country. We won't have to take a back seat to anybody. So I think my last update is the building supposed to be completed on the 23rd of June. As soon as we're out of quarantine, I can't wait to get back out there and see what we need to do on the facility itself to get it ready. And we got to get the irrigation in. We got to do some, some siding and some, and get it fine. But I, I'm just, I'm blown away every day that somebody could, can make that big of a difference in so many people's lives and do it with such humility that Sandy does. He's a prince of a person who's come forward and done as much as he can. Uh, and he's just, he's always fun to be around. We played in some tournaments together and laughed and cut up and had a great time. So it's just one thing after another, he reminds me every day of the kind of person you're supposed to be. And, and uh, I can't thank him enough. The boys can't thank him enough. And we just want to play better for him. You know, he follows us every tournament and he'll text me and write about the results and, you know, I'll vent and he listens. <laughs> so there we are. So talking about the team, you're going to have pretty much everybody back with Chris coming back for another year. And uh, with a young team this year, you got a couple of new players coming in that you signed early and a couple more players that you're bringing in this spring. So you're going to have your hands full trying to the, shake things out for the fall with, with who's going to be in that starting five. And it's always the difficult decision for any college coaches picking those five. Yeah. You know, that's a, it's a funny thing about college. And most of the kids, they, they want to qualify. They want to qualify to earn a seat in the van. And I, I totally understand that. Uh, I think the biggest thing is that sometimes in golf, just because you qualify at home, 
in Florida on a course that you know pretty well doesn't necessarily mean you can get on an airplane or get in the van and drive halfway across the country and play a golf course you've never seen and different kinds of grass and different kinds of uh, atmosphere and wind and stuff like that. doesn't necessarily mean just because you qualified at home, you could go be the best representative of what we need at a tournament. But, you, you know, to keep some sense of normalcy, you do really have to go with the qualifying process. I personally, as a coach, I'd, I'd much rather be like a baseball coach. I'd like to fill out the lineup card and go, these are my nine starters. This is the way it is. And if a young man has a problem with that, come to my office and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why you didn't go. I don't know that this um, generation can handle that blunt forecast of how this is going to be. And, and they see it in, they see it in golf. You know, you have to qualify for an AGA event. If you don't qualify, you don't play. If you're exempt, great. Or if you have to qualify for the tour, you have to qualify, qualify. Well, Qualifying doesn't, it's not necessarily the answer. You know, when Donnie Jones predicts his starting five, he goes with the guys that he thinks can play that night, run that scheme, play defense, place both ends of the court. And that's what it takes. Golf's a little different. So I subscribe to the qualifying to a point. But this year, I think having Chris back is going to be huge. Uh, we have a transfer coming in that's going to be huge. And then we had the boys that are back that I think they all have stepped up. They know what it's going to take to play better and that we have to play better. And the funny thing about college golf, if you just play one stroke better per person per round, you are so much better in the national rankings uh, that it's not even funny. One of the biggest uh, problems for us is getting into big tournaments because of our ranking. It's very hard sometimes to get in some prestigious tournaments. So I'm looking at this team to play better and, and be like the girls team this year that because you play better, all of a sudden the door is opening to play in really big tournaments. And there's no doubt that the kids on this team, the 10 boys on this team this year have the talent. They've got to look in the mirror and find out, what am I willing to give up to be better? What am I willing to do? How much time am I really willing to put in to play at the top level? And it's all on them. That's it. We'll see what happens. I guess one of the upsides to this whole pandemic and the, and the aftermath of what's going to happen with this is a lot of schools are talking about closing down how much they travel. So maybe some of these tournaments in Florida where in the past you haven't been able to get into, all of a sudden those doors start opening up as teams pull out and, and don't travel, maybe this is an opportunity for this program to, to make a move. Well, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, let's hope that happens. You know, uh, I've got my fingers crossed. I mean, it's ironic you said that. I actually got a, I'd written a coach asking for a spot in a tournament, a pretty nice tournament. And they said, well, we're full. We, we, we don't have a spot. You know, we can't have you. And lo and behold, I, I got an email on Saturday, uh, from this coach saying, Hey, listen, we, we got a spot. You, you'd ask about playing. And if you want to play, you know, we'd love to have you guys all of a sudden, we'd love to have you guys come play. Well, ironically, I've already scheduled something in Florida for that date. So I'm going to be traveling in Florida instead of going to North Carolina. So that's an advantage for me, but you know, I think what you said is, is very possible. I, my, my major concern is how many tournaments may fall by the wayside that I've maybe signed up for. Uh, I, I don't want to limit 
the, the travel that we're going to do. So I'm going to go raise the money and make sure that the boys can play a full schedule and be representative of the school and see if we can't go play better and make a notch for ourselves. You know, that's, there's no reason we can't, there's just absolutely no reason we can't play better because they have the talent. And I, I know you and I've talked about this before, but part of your philosophy in coaching and in playing in tournaments is, is about giving the kids a chance to have those experiences, those, those chances to compete in different places of the country to see different things. And I know that's something you've always wanted to do. How do you keep that going now with, with everybody at home? Well, I, I talk to the boys every week. We have a zoom meeting and we talk. And uh, matter of fact, while we're on this thing, I had two phone calls from players wanting to call and talk to me. So we are staying in touch. They know what they're supposed to do. And you know, the main reason that this is so uh, so important to keep playing, you don't know what life lessons comes out of some of these competitions. You know, our basketball team may have learned more in, in, in that win at South Carolina last year, and, and they actually learned a lot at the loss at Ohio State. But the thing is that we don't know what's that going to do. As coaches, we don't know what impact that's going to have on this young man or young lady somewhere down the road when there's a critical life decision to be made, how they're going to handle it by the exposure we gave them six years ago at a college contest where things weren't going so great. They had to either turn it around or be a man or be a young lady and suck it up and get after it. And that's what it is to me. I just don't think that young people can have overexposure. I don't think you can, I don't think you can expose young people to enough. Now, and, and I think what these kids have had to go through with this adversity with COVID-19, they've, they've looked, looked through something that we did, maybe my generation, Vietnam. Then, then you had the AIDS epidemic. Now these kids have been through this. You know, I, I hope they were more prepared for this simply because of what they learned playing a sport here at Stetson, volleyball, cross country. I mean, the, the determination these cross-country runners had to have, it's just easy to pull over in the shade and quit when you're trying to run that run. But our kids don't quit. Brian's kids don't quit. Coach Jones's kids don't quit. Tripper's kids don't quit. Roger Hughes, his kids don't quit. We don't quit. You know, and, and that's what I want to show my boys. We, when we quit, we let everybody back home down. We're, we're not traveling in this van with the S on the side because we're quitters, we're representing Stetson and we're going to go, we're going to give it everything we have until it's over because that's what we do. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but anybody can quit. Anybody can quit. That's the easiest thing in the world to do is quit. And uh, I think I got a group of kids that, that want to get after it and we're going to see. All right, Larry, well, we've been at this for 90 minutes now, so and we could do another 90, and we'll probably do it again here before too long, but I'll let you go with that note. appreciate you coming on and joining me on the Hatter Chatter, the podcast, and uh, we'll look forward to having you again on very soon. Thank you, Ricky. Thanks for all you do for us, buddy. Be safe. Once again, I'd like to thank our corporate sponsors for making our podcast and everything we do in Stetson Athletics possible. First of all, for our podcast – our title sponsor, Insight Credit Union. Our other sponsors for Stetson Athletics include Bud Light, Coca-Cola Florida, The Weston in Lake Mary, Total Comfort, Hampton Inn, 
Morningstar Storage Solutions, Geico, Main Street Bank, Imageworks, Orlando Sanford International Airport, Florida Orthopedic Associates, and the Alliance Community. Thank you to all of our corporate sponsors. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. 